Thank you to everybody who who's joining in today at the Sangha and here on, on Zoom. I am very grateful to be talking about this. This is a topic which is very close to my heart. So um, I'm going to jump right into it because there is a lot we need to cover. <laughs> um, so for those of us who don't know me, I am a mother of two young children. I have a three-year-old and I have a seven-year-old. All right, so mindful parenting um, is a craft which can be developed and practiced in the same way we are developing our daily sitting practice. The more we are able to notice and let go of our own discomfort and impulsive reactivity by bringing our focus and our attention back to the breath, the more we are able to develop samadhi positivity and upekka. And samadhi is concentration, positivity is tranquility, and upekka is equanimity. And these are just three of the seven awakening factors. So in a nutshell, we can say that the goal is, the goal of mindful parenting is to respond to a child's behavior <clears throat> with patience, kindness, and compassion. And um, these three are elements of right intention, which is um, part of the fourth noble truth, the noble eightfold path. All right, so let's talk about truth briefly. Um, the first one is the truth, and I, I ask you to to stick with me. <laughs> um, I hope you're gonna you're gonna get a lot out out of it. Um, I want to just make sure I cover the four noble truths first. So the first one is dukkha, the truth of suffering. Um, and dukkha is to be understood. Um, dukkha can also be translated as distress and confusion, the stress we experience. So dukkha is to be understood as a condition of the mind and not a self. Second, um, it is understood as changeable due to anicca, which is impermanence. And third, dealt with effectively through letting go of the craving and clinging that creates dukkha, which brings us to the second noble truth, which is the source of dukkha, it's craving and clinging. With the second noble truth, there is the attachment to the three kinds of desire, which is the desire for sense pleasure, the desire to become, and the desire to get rid of. And this leads us to the third noble truth, which is the cessation of suffering through breaking the cycle of craving and clinging. So this means that dukkha can be ended by letting go of craving and clinging. And this is right effort between, within the Noble Eightfold Path. And the fourth Noble Truth is the Noble Eightfold Path. This is the path which is leading to the confinement of Tanha and Dukkha. So when we go back to what I mentioned before, that the goal is to respond to child's behavior with kindness, compassion, and uh, patience, this would be the third noble truth. However, in order to get to the third noble truth, we have to understand the first and the second noble truth. When we talk about dukkha, let's talk about dukkha and see how it is relevant to our parenting experience. So dukkha is part of the three characteristics, which are Anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Anicca is impermanence. Dukkha is distress and confusion or suffering. And anatta is the absence of an enduring and autonomous self. 
So there are three types of dukkha. The first one is dukkha dukkha, which is physical suffering. Um, as an example, you experience a pain in your leg or in your arm. This is a physical discomfort what you experience. If you're mindful, you're able to stay with the physical discomfort. Um, however, if our mindfulness practice is not as strong, then it can lead to aversion, which would be then the mental discomfort coming out of the physical discomfort. The second type is the Parinama Dukkha. Um, this is the frustration of disappearing happiness. An example would be um, when we encounter the thought, this is not supposed to be that way. So in regards to parenting, it can mean the beha a behavior of a child which does not match the expectation we have in that moment. And then Sankara Dukkha is the distress and confusion which is created by karmic influences. So memories and uh, previous reactions to similar situations than the one we experience that moment. And Sankara can be understood as a distorted belief. For example, it can mean children should always behave and parents are always in control. So actually having the expectation that it should be this way is Sankara Dukkha. So when it comes to mindful parenting, um, the distress or Dukkha is to be understood in order to arrive at the third one. We already covered this. And in order to get to the third noble truth, we have to learn how to manage the characteristics of our personality. All right, so here's how karma operates and how we can cultivate samadhi paucity. And as a reminder, samadhi is concentration and paucity is tranquility. So um, let's imagine that there is a loud noise or something flying through the room. So. If you are a parent of a young child, you can imagine any situation. And even if you do not have children, you can imagine any situation where you have either a noise or something you see. So the first one is, or the first, the first step is, you have a visual and an auditory stimulus, which is happening. So you see something or you hear something, right? And there is a split second between this stimulus and then the second step which is when the mind creates meaning out of it so when the mind creates meaning the karma kicks in and it's based on our past experiences so as an example um let's say i hear one of my children screaming out loud if i'm able to just listen to the scream then i have an auditory stimulus right but in this case I go to number two, the second point, which is, oh, you know, immediately I come to the conclusion that my children are fighting. This is the story what is created in the mind. So there is an unpleasant feeling and a surge of impulsive reactivity. And this surge of impulsive reactivity is based on the hardwired instincts we have that we have to react to the threat we are experiencing. In this case, it's the loud, the loud noise. Now, our mindfulness practice allows us to first be aware of the arising urgency we experience. And second, it allows us to let go of the impulse to react 
the impulse we, we experience. And third, um, it helps us to respond more accurately. And this is karma, but it does not produce distress. It does not produce dukkha. So I'm going to repeat that because this was something what somehow blew my mind when I, when I learned about that. So again, you know, you have that noise and then automatically your mind jumps to a conclusion that your children are arguing or fill in the blank from your situation. And again, if we have the mindfulness practice, the practice allows us to be aware of the urgency which is arising. It allows us to let go of the impulse to react and to respond in a, more accurately, right? And um, the result is something we call wholesome karma. And if we keep repeating this wholesome karma, it leads to the feeling of joy, which is piti. It's one of the awakening factors. And then we respond with kindness, compassion, and patience, which we talked about at the beginning, right? That this is the goal of, of mindful, this is our goal of mindful parenting. If we do that, and if we practice, if we keep practicing, this becomes something which is called vipaka, it's stored karma. So we keep practicing this in order for this to become our new normal. Um, and talking about vipaka, which is stored karma, like you said, I mentioned, um, there is wholesome and unwholesome stored karma. And vipaka also means the ability to be mindful and renounce impulsive reactivity. And then on the other side, if you imagine, if, if we imagine that there is no mindfulness practice, then what do we do? We give into the urge to react and we react also out of, out of the impulse. So this would be the not mindful way to respond. So here's an example. Um, here's another example to illustrate this. So. Let's say my child is doing something what he or she is not supposed to do. Um, example, turning the light switches on and off. This would be Viparanama Dukkha. The thought comes up, this is not supposed to be this way. And what happens next is crucial, and it happens in a split second. That's why our mindfulness practice is so important to practice noticing. So the first option would be to give into the craving and clinging, which is the cause of dukkha, we heard at the beginning. So we're giving into the belief that the child should act different and the parent desired behavior will be enforced based on our prior experiences, what we experienced on our conditioning with the tools we have, which may not be appropriate to the situation or the age of the child. Examples may be um, snapping at the child, threatening to take away privileges or to take away a toy um, or taking the child and, and removing him from the spot. So any chosen path here results in simply more discomfort and more resistance for both parent and child. And in this case, we create unwholesome karma and this produces more distress more dukkha. And the other option would be that hopefully the mindfulness practice reached a level of maturity that the parent is able to notice what's happening. So we may notice that there is the urge 
to raise the voice. We may notice tension in our body. Um, and ultimately, we even we may even raise our voice or the parent, parent may even raise the voice. But here, mindfulness helps recognize the belief that I am attached to, that this should be this way, that I expect this to be this way, right? And that the child should respond in a more adult way. And as I am able to notice this and recognize, I am able to redirect my response and find a more pause and find a more accurate way. And so I do, I practice not feeding the anger or the impulse I experience. And how do we do that? We bring attention back to the breath and anchor, and we're able to anchor ourselves and redirect our response. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> sorry. So in the case that feelings got hurt, um, there is still room for something which I call damage control um, by mentalizing what happened and act as a role model, even in challenging times. So, you know, in my day-to-day -day life, I often mess up as well. And um, I remember being told by my mom to never apologize to my children or to never explain what I'm doing. And I somehow created a habit pretty early that if I do not show them that it's accurate to say that you made a mistake and to model them how it looks like to apologize, then where should we learn it? So this is a very important tool, mentalizing what happened in order to explain to them and, and, and apologize. So here is how parenting may look like the majority of the time. Um, we already thought we already briefly talked about this. Our moment-to-moment -moment actions are more reactive than responsive. The majority of our actions are driven by our own karma. Karma is the cause of law and effect, and karma creates dukkha, the distress. Um, it is important to point out that our actions will be a reflection of our past, the way we were raised, and the things we experienced. So as an example, a specific event, for example, when you have a child who is whining for a cookie or to get another treat or he or she wants to do something, um, this may act as a trigger that instead of choosing to pause, observe and respond, we will be overwhelmed and act out by getting loud, ridiculing the situation or punish the child in any way, like taking away something for an example. And why do we do that? Well, it's because we we just don't know any better. We do not have the skills. We're not equipped. And this is called ignorance. Um, in Pali, we call it avicca. So our default mode of reaction is based on our past experience. It is ingrained in us. And if we do not observe and question our actions, we will pass it on. We will pass on our own experiences to the next generation. Now the question is, how do we do that, right? How do we change these patterns and how do we become a more mindful parent? So here it is important to talk about the concept of self-care 
self-care is very crucial and um, I can say from my own experience that for a long time I thought that mindful parenting means that I basically have to ignore all of my needs and I am only there for my children and I'm only here to satisfy their needs and to serve them and it took me some time and a lot of dukkha to understand that parenting includes the setting of boundaries. However, I feel it's important to mention here that it's not just parenting where we need boundaries, it's in any relation we need to set boundaries. And there are two types of boundaries. There are intrapersonal boundaries and interpersonal boundaries. So the first one is I-N-T-R-A, intrapersonal. These are the boundaries I set for myself in order to practice self-care. Um, so this, an example for this is a commitment to a daily sitting practice. Or for someone else, it may mean going for walks or reading a book. So some whatever it is, what you need in order to exercise um, self-care. And the second one is interpersonal boundaries. I-N-T-E-R. These are boundaries I set and keep with other people. And um, effective intrapersonal boundaries, intrapersonal boundaries, so boundaries I set for myself, lead to effective interpersonal boundaries. <clears throat> and the reason I mention this is because modeling this behavior is crucial for two reasons. The first one is for the sake of the mental and physical well-being of the parent, the self-care portion we talked about, and also to model to the developing child the concept of respecting other people's boundaries and how to exercise self-care. That goes back to what I mentioned. If I do not show, if I do not model my child how to apologize, then it's very hard. It's, it's, it's harder for, for him to learn. So in this case, I'm modeling how to take care of myself in order for my child, hopefully, that he, he will be able to take care of himself and set his boundaries. Um, oftentimes when we read literature or listen to podcasts, it may sound like, or it may feel like that parenting is a set of strategies one has to learn in order to know what to do with the child or to the child or how to address the behavior. Um, however, mindful parenting is a combination of addressing our own discomfort in order to be able to address our child's discomfort in an appropriate and loving way. When we parent our child in a mindful way, we intentionally choose to address our own wounds and start the healing process. Loving kindness, patience, Equanimity and a deep sense of joy are some of the traits we encounter on this journey, we encounter and embrace on this journey. Um, there, is, there is a documentary on Netflix, which is called Mission Joy, Finding Happiness in Troubled Times. Um, it is a conversation between Archbishop Desmond Tutu and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And it is on Netflix. And it's very beautiful. Um, and the Dalai Lama says, Joyful, joyfulness. So he was asked, 
he was asked if joy is the ultimate means for world peace. And here his, his response was, joyfulness is helping others. You get more satisfaction to build happy society, peaceful society. Firstly, peaceful family. In order to create peaceful family, firstly, individual person himself, herself should create inner peace, joyfulness. Then share with family members. Then through that one family, 10 families, 100 families, that will bring change or bring happier society or community. Then eventually national level, then humanity's level. Seven billion human beings, we all have the same desire, same right to achieve happy life. So what we hear here is basically, it's, it's coming down to what I mentioned before, right? Um, first, we have to take care of ourselves in order to take care of other people. So very important concept. <laughs> um, so in the past couple of years, and since my spiritual practice fused together with motherhood, um, I am questioning myself multiple times. If I am doing it right, if it makes sense what I'm doing, and if it will have a long-lasting, hopefully positive effect on my children, what I'm doing. So, of course, doubt is always a big player. And um, even though there is a lot of doubt, um, I would like to give you some examples. Um, good examples and... I don't even want to say not so good examples because every example is a good example and an opportunity to learn and to grow. So I would like to give you a recent example on how my seven-year-old son controlled his impulsive reactivity and was able to describe it in his own words. So this happened a few days ago, actually, and um, my boys were playing together and suddenly I heard a very loud, ouch, Emilio shouting out. So my, my younger one's name is Emilio. And it caught my attention and my immediate impulse was to intervene and separate them to avoid further pain. Why? Because that's what I experienced in the past. Whenever I heard something, a loud noise or a naming or something, then my mind automatically jumped to the conclusion that something is happening, right? So... um. Usually an ouch is followed by some sort of reaction, you know, like yelling, pushing, blaming, naming, fill in the blank. So I expected, I expected something to happen. However, as I was waiting, because I practiced setting my interpersonal boundary, um, I was waiting for something to happen. Um, the only reaction I noticed was that my older son was frozen and my younger one just lowered his head. And nothing happened. So that for me was a moment of surprise. So this felt like an eternity. These were probably a few seconds. Um, and I decided to simply ask what happened. And this question of what happened is an example of mentalizing, uh, which means I'm using words to help my children understand their emotions and their behaviors. This is something I've... I've gotten used to, and um, it's a very, very helpful tool. As my older son explained that he got hit on the head by a toy from my younger one, I knew that it was probably unintentional. So I said, I think it was not on purpose. And I invited my younger one to apologize, which he did. 
and they kept playing. Everything was good. And at that moment, I, I was shocked. Uh, moments later, I said to my older son, I am very proud of you. And usually I've gotten used to tell my children, you must be very proud of yourself in order to shift the focus from you are doing something which makes me proud to you are doing something. Oh, you can be proud of that. This is one thing I learned from, from, from one of the many parenting books. <laughs> um, and his response was, I wanted to hit him back, but I didn't. So in that moment, you know, pure joy overcame me. So I decided to push further and I explained to him, this was an example of self-control and how you were able to control your impulse. And even though he's only seven years old, I've gotten used to um, just explaining it to them, even though they might not understand half of it, but I wanna create the habit of talking about it. So my children are able to explain um, and put into words what they're going through. Again, getting back to the point of mentalizing, right? And um, then he said, so can I get a sweet treat now because I did the right thing? So at that moment, we went back to, all right, here is my seven-year-old. So this, this for me was a beautiful example of um, impulse control of a very young child. And the next example I would like to give is my inability of impulse control. <laughs> Um, and this happened with my younger son. So every day, um, my younger son and I were picking up my older son from school. And in the past couple of months, he usually naps in the car. So I am waiting in the car line and I have my 45 minutes of quiet and silence. Um, and I've gotten used to that, right? Um, and usually he naps, he stopped napping. Um, and there was the expectation, right? So I already had the expectation that he's going to nap and I'm going to have my time, but this was not met. So here we go. There is Viparanama Dukkha, right? The expectation was not met. And there was a story which started to develop. You know, this is usually my time. He's throwing the toys on the floor. He wants to talk to me. So fill in the blank, right? And this is Sankara Dukkha. And additionally, I already felt tense because of a general sense of discomfort that day. And what I was trying to do is I was trying to ignore my son's behavior because I knew that he's three, so asking him to stop is a hit or a miss. Um, but I started to feel more tense. And thanks to my, to my practice, I was able to feel that tightness and the tension. However, I was not able to remove myself from that situation in order to breathe or to take some time off. So I was confronted with the situation and I decided to kindly ask him to please stop op trying to open the, the, the door in that, in that case. And his answer was sticking out his tongue and simply saying no. And my attempt to explain why this behavior is inappropriate and we could both do better, of course, <laughs> was met with more resistance. And this just, this didn't help, of course. And my ten, I, I got more tense. Um, so here I noticed the tension. I noticed the impulsiveness. I noticed the urge to do something about it, right? Because this is not supposed to be this way. And there was this split second 
and then reaction happened. And in this case, I snapped at him and I said, if you do not stop that, then I'm gonna take away a toy or, or cut TV. I don't know what it was. And so basically I turned into a toddler that day. I noticed immediately how I went down the rabbit hole and he started crying, which of course made me feel bad and guilty for what I did. And internally at first I was trying to justify because I was still clinging there. We had the craving and clinging part. I was still clinging to that sense of righteousness that, you know, it was, it was supposed to be my time. Um, but I knew that this is not going to lead me anywhere. And this was where my mindfulness practice again kicked in. So he said, sorry, because he was trying to open the door and I apologized as well. He said, it's okay. And I said, no, I could have done better. I will try next time. And at that point, you know, I knew that laughing is the best remedy for both of us. So thank goodness, goofiness took over and peace was restored. Um, so that's, that's again, we're getting back to the point of damage control, right? I am messing up as well, but it's important to show that it's okay and I can make it right. Um, however, it's important to notice that if um, damage control is needed or, you know, an apology, then one should do it soon and not wait for a long period of time because then they probably already forgot what happened. Um, one of the most valuable lessons I learned from my practice is practicing loving kindness myself. This was something which I abandoned for a long time. And um, I realized how crucial it is, right? Being compassionate and patient uh, with my own practice and with my own parenting milestones. Um, so, yeah, um, this actually concludes my talk. Um, what I do want to say is Whenever I know, whenever I stop practicing, it takes a, there is a time lapse, but I notice the difference in my response or my reaction. So based on what we talked about today, to me, it is even more clear than it was before how crucial it is to have a daily sitting practice, right? To sit on a regular basis, to practice bringing our attention back to the breath, notice what's happening in the body, notice, noticing when, when the mind creates these stories, right? Um, when we are attached to craving and clinging and simply practicing letting go and bringing our attention back to the breath. Because all these, all these sitting sessions we have may be small, but at the end of the day, they have a huge impact on our own development as well as the development of everyone we get in touch with, in this case, with our children. So this concludes my, my talk. Um, I will add a list of books if somebody's interested in, which I highly recommend. Um, I have two here. Um, I really like this author. It's Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. It's called The Whole Brain Child. Let's see. Now, this is one book. Um, it's really, really good. And I hope that at another time we can talk about um, the brain development of children, because this is also so important in order to know how to respond to them in an accurate way based on their developmental stage. And there's another one which is really good. It's also from Dan Siegel. 
and Tina Payne Bryson, and it's called No Drama Discipline. So I'm going to add this um, to the notes, and there are three other ones, which is, one is called Simplicity Parenting. I don't know the author right now, but I will look it up. The other one is Unconditional Parenting, and then Raising Good Humans. So I'm going to add them to the notes. Um, and now we have... Yeah, if, if we have time, if, if somebody has some comments or you want to share your experience or have any questions. Yes, um, uh, Brian here in the meeting has a comment or a question. Go ahead, Brian. Literally listening to you, um, I'm a parent also to start. I have two daughters, one 11 and one 7, so I can very much relate. Um, and as you were talking uh, tonight, those books by uh, Dan Siegel came to mind as I've, I've read them also. Um, and I would also endorse both of them. They do a really good job of talking about, and I think the models that they set forth are much more applicable to relationships in general than just parent and child. They talk about connecting first with wherever the person is or the child is before you jump into your reaction or the discipline. Uh, they talk, like she said, about mentalizing. He, he talks about something called name it to tame it, which is the mentalization where when we talk about our feelings, they sometimes lessen a little bit in intensity and are a little bit more um, workable. Uh, we're less overwhelmed by them. So I, I definitely appreciate that. And um, as far as mindfulness goes, my younger daughter will sometimes in the morning, she has her own sense of style, whereas the older daughter you know, mom picked out her clothes till she was probably seven or eight. The younger one, no, uh, has her own ideas about things. And um, in the morning, sometimes she decides that she doesn't want to wear whatever we've gotten into a routine where she has to pick out the night before because we know this happens. But sometimes in the morning, she still doesn't want to wear whatever she picked out the night before. And I noticed a lot of times I would jump in to help her and try to resolve the problem. And more recently, uh, with more practice, I have been pausing, letting her do her thing, not not getting upset, or not upset isn't the right word, because it's not that extreme, but like bothered by it myself, like feeling this urgency to help her, and just kind of let it sit, and kind of ask her, okay, well, what, what should we do? And I found that I've been able to maintain my calm and, and demeanor much better Whereas before it could get to a point where I'm irritable with her because I've showed her 10 different shirts and she doesn't have any clothes that are going to work. So, um, so anyways, so that, that's my little anecdote about it. Yes, Thank Dan you. Siegel. Dan Siegel is uh, a very well-respected uh, researcher and teacher and meditator. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing your experience, and I absolutely relate to that. I My three-year-old is similar with choosing out his clothes, and I think it's so interesting. You know, when I was listening to you, it came to mind that imagine, you know, a young child picking out the clothes the, the day before, and then the next day, you know, we there is the expectation from us, I feel, that, you know, you picked it out yesterday. You should still like it. But we know that in children it happens so often, even with my son, you know, he picked out his snack for school and the next day, I don't want to have that anymore. So it's, yeah, by by letting go, you know, you probably win a lot more than going into going into the battle. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you.
one other thing that comes to mind is that um, parallel between intrapersonal and interpersonal ways of solving things and dealing with life. I do think that learning to deal with your, until you, if you can't deal with your own anger, it's very hard to teach someone else to effectively. And the mindfulness, as Lily pointed out, when you become more aware of what's going on with yourself and figure out what works for you to calm down and be more effective, you know, you have, it's, it's great to get to that place before you start interacting with someone else. And then um, it's also easier to, to help someone else learn how to do that. So. And just to add on to that, when the child is old enough, you can actually say to them, you know, I'm feeling pretty upset right now, so I'm going to take a moment to, you know, pay attention to my breathing and calm myself down because I can tell that I'm getting upset and I really don't like being upset. It's no fun for me. It's no fun for you. And so that's modeling for the child um, a good way to take care of yourself. So that turns an intrapersonal uh, boundary process into an interpersonal modeling process, which is also quite useful. And what what Brian talked about, I think was so important too, right? I feel, I, I wish, I wish I had known about mindfulness practice before I became a mother, right? That's wishful thinking. However, I feel that it's so beautiful that now it's more available because it's right, you know, it's it's important to deal with your own distress because then you're more effective, right? But oftentimes it's, I feel it's the other way around. You know, you become a parent and then you are confronted with it because you encounter all of these triggers and all of these memories and things come up. So you have to parent at the same time you're working through your own things. So sometimes it may feel like it's a little bit more difficult maybe, but at the same time, I feel that it's a beautiful opportunity to lead by example and um, and role model. I saw an interesting doc, uh, uh, news feed the other day, a video of a school in Tampa that was, is implementing uh, mindfulness training. And this is in a, in a school that is in a disadvantaged neighborhood. So the uh, principal of the school apparently has been trained in mindfulness, but is teaching the uh, kids in you know elementary school how to take care of their own uh, emotions, which I found to be very promising, hopeful. And what's beautiful in this case, the Tampa case you're mentioning, is that um, they were saying that after they have it every morning, I think for about eight minutes um, before school starts, or before, before the class starts. And what's beautiful is that they noticed that after the few minutes of mindfulness, there is a lot more willingness of the children to share how they feel. And that's something they noticed throughout that time, you know, from the time they started to implement this mindfulness practice to whenever they had the, the article done. The other thing I want to add to this is that uh, mindful parenting isn't just about children. What what happens when your children are adults, right? What kind of relationship do you have with your adult children? Are you still going to interact with them as if they're, you know, five years old? 
or uh, which is what you know the old karmic pattern, the vipaka, the unwholesome vipaka is going to seem to compel intervening. Um, or are you going to find different ways to communicate? You know, Lily, when your children become adolescents, you're going to have to practice a different kind of parenting. So that goes to the issue. That goes to the issue of non-self again. Yes, you can't be the same parent that you were when they were uh, um, the age they're at now. But I feel I feel you can see that also from you know when I look at my parents right now. I mean, my parents are around their seventies, and there was a change. There was a time when my parents turned from being the nurturing parents, being, you know, the household I come from, to being companions, you know, um, more of guides along my way. And that's what I'm hoping for. So I am, what I'm hoping for is, you know, everything what I'm trying to do with mindful parenting and mentalizing and, you know, modeling, um, I want to make sure that I create that relationship to my children that once they're older, that I can just be that guide for them. However, of course, as you said, you know, that involves that I am successfully transitioning from being the caring mother, like caring for young children to, all right, I'm here to support you, you know, being more of a support and of a guide than being the one who washes the strawberries. Peter, to your point about being Brian again. Sorry, to, uh, to your point about being a different person at a different time in your life, you know that you'll have to be a different parent. Then I always thought it was interesting to think about people and myself, even with a, a subscripted age next to my name. You know, Brian subscript fifteen is a very different person than Brian subscript you know forty six. <laughs> and I think that I never really thought about the connection to the no self or the non enduring self and how much change we go through but I think that was kind of it's kind of a reflection of that Mary you raised your hand yes um, so I have a, a really good friend from my college days and we've stayed close even though we live uh, she lives in Colorado I live in California and she had a she has just an only son and he's finishing up college right now, but he was born with um, like a genetic disorder that was just out of the blue and pretty rare. And he's, he's mentally okay. He has some physical differences in his neck area to where like his vertebra is not fully formed. And, and so, um, she, the doctors told her, you know, when, you know, as soon as he was born, you know, they knew he had this condition. Um, basically, if he's into any kind of an, a major whiplash kind of accident, he'll likely be in a wheelchair from then on. And so my, my friend has gone through a whole motherhood of having this underlying underlying anxiety to to um like she has this fragile son 
And um, like, you know, when he was a kid, I didn't, you know, he didn't have too many emotional problems, but then as he became a teenager, then there was the whole realm of not being accepted and, and, and not having friends or girlfriends. And so then he's contemplating suicide. And um, now that he's finishing college, it's almost like we're cycling back to that. Um, well, no one's ever going to hire me because I'm kind of a freak and, you know, life is just um, not good for me. So we're kind of cycling back to that. And um, it's pretty um, traumatic for my friend. And um, I can't even imagine um, her situation. And I never really know what to say to her because it would every, I would just be so afraid it would sound insensitive. And I don't really think, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I'm kind of new to the Buddhist um, philosophy, so I don't really have a good grasp of it to begin with, but I don't really think she would be interested in, in a kind of an approach like that. And so um, I guess uh, in your parenting books, um, I guess how, how do you parent and get through life when you are given a child that is more of an existential situation than than all your friends and and family. I I'm not sure if my, you know, I'm not sure if I can respond to you. You know, I, I can, the, the way I would approach your question is um, that I would probably try to, um, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your friend and her situation with her son, right? And I'm actually congratulating that he's finishing college. That's beautiful. Um, however, I think I would probably imagine you're putting my putting myself in... Um, in your friend's shoes, right? I can only, I can share that, you know, since I became a parent, fear and anxiety are around me all the time, right? I mean, you are exposed to so many threats when it comes to children, you know, that it's it's a constant companion, especially since my son entered school. Um, however, I wonder if I would probably, and Peter, um, I, I'm going to reach out to you if you feel that, you know, you would, you would respond in a different way. Um, but I feel that I would probably, by working on your own, on your own fear as a mother, right, of, of why you're treating your child that way, why you... Um, well, probably working on my own response first, working on my own distress, my own sadness, um, my own grief, maybe first. And um, then, you know, one thing that like, if I'm really honest, my, my fear, like, I mean, obviously, I, I don't want anything bad to happen to him. And I feel like I live with the, the threat that I'll lose a friend if 
something bad happens to him, I feel like that friendship is just gonna like just be gone to a loser because she will go in a place that is no longer there for me. And so are you like, I mean, I kind of have to work with that fear in myself first. Well, I mean, you were saying that, you know, you, you cannot make the decision for her basically if, you know, she is open to any sort of, you know, working on herself, but in your case, because you are confronted with the fear, maybe there is, you know, room for you to work with what it means for you that she's going through that and and your distress of maybe losing her or, you know, developing developing compassion for for your friend and for yourself, developing compassion for your friend for what she's going through. And I feel that you know, if, if you have somebody who's going through something, um, I feel that probably the most, the best thing you can do is if you want to be there for that person to really work on loving kindness and compassion to be there as a support, but making sure that you have your own boundaries for yourself, right? And work with your own, your own distress and your own sadness. I'm not sure, Peter, if you would respond to that in a different way. I, I support what you just said, Lily. It's the same principle. You start out with dealing with your own fears, your own uh, uncertainties about your friend's um, predicament and what it might mean to you. And then from that, you, your ability to respond appropriately to her depends on how well you respond to your own fear in terms of kindness and compassion and equanimity. It'll just come... Um, it'll occur to you what the right thing to do is. The deeper you go into your own process of self-compassion, the more you'll be able to find the resources to be supportive of your friend uh, should she be put in a difficult situation like that with her her sons? I mean, even if he doesn't, even if he continues to live, he's struggling with his own sense of self-worth, right? And so, I mean, that's that's part of the issue as well. John? No, John. Well, I had just the opposite. That says mute. When can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay, but it says mute on my screen. So I was okay. Now I'm obeying my screen. Okay. Anyway, I think that it doesn't have to be a Buddhist answer. I think that um, compassion is being Buddhist. So I think back to breath is probably the best. You know, you will answer with that compassion to that child uh, or that fear or your own fear, but just go, consciously go back to breath and, you know, and you will answer that question the right way with your heart. And I think that's that's the secret to, um, I don't think it's Buddhism, I think it's back to breath. That is what it, you're taught. And that is, the, the, you know, I work in all those situations. 
Thank you. I want to mention something to what John said right now, because Mary, you were mentioning that you're new to the concept and, and new to, to, to meditation, if I understood you right. Is that right? I, you're a mute. I'm not so much new to meditation in general as okay. I am to, to the, um, like the, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, all the, the, the categories and that kind of stuff. Okay. The, the re what I wanted to mention is, um, when I joined this, when I joined the Sangha, I remember that to me, <laughs> every time I heard just go back to the breath, like it cannot be that easy, right? <laughs> so it's to me still until today, I am fascinated by the beauty and the simplicity of the teaching, even though, as we know, you know, it's not that easy, but it's incredible. You know, as, as I mentioned in the talk too, like going back to the breath, practicing, letting go of, of impulsiveness, letting go of the stories the mind is creating, bringing your attention back to the breath, right? This simple, it's not really simple, but this, this somehow it is, right? This simple practice helps you to find this equanimity, right? Tranquility, concentration. And this helps you to, to basically do the right thing, right? To respond from a wholesome place, from, from a place of, of kindness, compassion, and, um, and patience. Even to your friend, right? What John mentioned, just going back to the breath, right? Practicing this and, and to not forget practicing loving kindness for yourself. Coming back to the intrapersonal boundaries we are setting, not just with children, but also with, you know, friends and family as well. Well, it seems like there may be no more comments or questions. Uh, I want to thank you for your presentation, Lily. I mean, your your presentation is authentic. You're right in the middle of it. And I know you and I have talked a lot about how to integrate your uh, meditation practice with uh, effective parenting. And um, I'm really glad that you're sharing what you're learning with us. I'm, I'm sure I'm that grateful. it will really help you uh be even more effective with your boys. I am. I'm really grateful. I mean, this this is this is home for me in the sense of I'm confronted with this on a day to day basis. And what's interesting when when I when I prepared for the talk, and the more I went back to read about you know what happens in the moment what do we encounter how does this actually work right getting back to the simplicity of this this for me was mind-blowing you know you have an auditory and the visual stimulus this is it right and everything else what comes after that's mind created so that's where you can work with it and the more it's incredible. Like today, there were probably 10 examples, right? So once the more you, you work with it, the more you repeat it, the more you, that's why, you know, we're working with, with, um, that's why we're reading also the books and doing the study groups. The more you work with it, the more you implement it in small, the more you see the results in the big. So yeah, I'm, I'm grateful I was able to share. And I really hope that, you know, that some of you, are able to take something home. 
from the talk and thank you so much for for taking time and and listening and and being here and also to to the people who are um, at the sangha we're going to be continuing with our review of the four noble truths next week or actually the next two weeks i'm going to be talking about the uh, second noble truth which is the cause of dukkha, which is uh, craving and clinging. So I'm going to talk about the uh, the nature of craving from a uh, spiritual, psychological, and even neurological point of view, and the same with cra- uh, clinging, and also talk about next week the transition from self-state conflict, which is what dukkha is, towards self-state integration, which I would call uh, good uh, mental health, a sense of well-being. The dukkha is still there, but it's much more effectively managed. And then the second week, I'm going to talk about the transition from self-state integration toward self-state liberation, which is the process of awakening. And that will lead up to the talk uh, which will follow that, which will be about the third noble truth, which is liberation from dukkha. So, I hope that uh, you found tonight's discussion valuable. Whether you're a parent or not, self-care is still very important. Intrapersonal and interpersonal boundaries it's where we live. We live in relationship. So it's our custom at the end of our meetings to sit uh, together in silence briefly. So let's do that. for your practice and your willingness to participate in the meeting and I hope that we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to chat.